What I'd like to begin with is to share with you a very simple phrase from one of the earliest Buddhist texts. And the phrase is touching enlightenment with the body. And I want to unpack that a little. Touching enlightenment with the body. And so by enlightenment, what do we mean? Enlightenment, the simplest way I can understand is really realizing and inhabiting the truth of what we are the awareness and the love that really is our nature. To be enlightened is to realize and live that, not to be caught in any story of smallness and separation. And so what this text is saying is, touch that realization with your body. In other words, to wake up means to be awake in these bodies. Contrary to some of the misunderstandings about meditation we're not kind of getting real still and going into a zone where we're out there it's crystal rainbows of light happening out there and there's not a sense of hereness I don't know if that word is so grammatical but I like it, hereness (laughs) because it really has that sense of um, and this is the inquiry right this moment right this moment and I'm asking you this moment if you're feeling distracted What does that mean to you, to really be awake here? I mean, like, can you snap and go, okay, here, and listen, and listen and feel your body? And it's important, when I say listen to and feel your body, it's because often we try to feel our body, but there's some directing, controlling, resisting. If you have that receptivity of listening into your body you're kind of receiving sensations it's that kind of presence touching enlightenment with our body means that these bodies, these senses this listening and feeling is our entry it's our gateway to sacred presence to realization so I'm going to explore that more with you but just to say we cannot experience the fruits of the spiritual path what we long for if we had to say well what do, what do you long for it's, it's that love without holding back that presence that really lets us live our moments not be on our way somewhere else it's realizing truth living from truth we can't experience that if we don't have this capacity to be here to kind of cut through the trancyness and be right here another language is to belong to what's right here to surrender into what's right here this is John O'Donohue he says, belonging is the living and passionate presence of the soul Belonging is the living and passionate presence of the soul. Belonging is the heart and warmth of intimacy. We need to come home to the temple of our senses. Our bodies know that they belong. It is our minds that make our lives so homeless. Isn't that a great line? I'll say it again. Our bodies know that they belong. It's our minds that make our lives so homeless. 
any time we're lost in thought in the future or the past, we've left home. This isn't a diatribe against thought. We can have thoughts and have them really serve our lives. But when we're lost, we forget our belonging. I want to dedicate tonight's talk to John O'Donohue. How many of you know of John O'Donohue, poet, Catholic scholar, teacher? So John died last week, or about five days ago, six days ago. He wrote a book, Anamkara, which has, to, has the languaging of soul friend, like Kalyanamitta, spiritual friend. And his teachings uh, really have to do with what we're talking about tonight, touching enlightenment, this real awakening through the temple of our senses. A book I'd recommend of his is Eternal Echoes. So the pathway, this gateway that really is taught through all the mystical traditions of presence is through this kind of here-ness, like right now. Keep coming back, because it's the only way to do it. You know, just to come back, ah, here, these sounds. This breath right now. Now what happens when we come into this radical presence is first of all it's completely changing all the time it's like this flowing changing river of experience so there's nowhere to settle that's disorienting if we really let go into it if we really belong to that that tumbling changing experience and all our tendencies to want to control and anchor and stabilize and be certain get thrown out the window so there's this out of control That's one thing that happens when we belong to the present. Another is there's either a pleasantness or unpleasantness that you find in most moments. Some are neutral, but mostly, this is Western psychology and Buddhist psychology, mostly if you arrive right here, you're going to notice it's either got a quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness. And then what happens? you arrive here and there's those qualities well if it's unpleasant we get tripped off into leaving (laughs) if it's unpleasant we don't want to feel it so we immediately go nope, don't like this on some level there's a computation that something is wrong that's just what happens with unpleasantness and then we tighten up our bodies tighten up and mostly what we do when it's unpleasant we leave with our minds We try to figure out how to fix it, how to get rid of it, how to control it, or we daydream ourselves into something else, but we leave. And if it's pleasant, what happens? We pretty much know. If it's pleasant, we are pretty quickly trying to figure out how to keep it, hold on to it. We trip off on it. And we go through our day like this where there's these unpleasant and pleasant thoughts and feelings, and we're constantly managing things. John O'Donohue, one of my most, one of the phrases he described that really helped me was he said, we're trying to manage our life so intensely so that we miss out on the great mystery that's here. He says, we rush through our days in such stress and intensity as if we were here to stay and the serious project of the world depended on us. But do you know that sense of like here to stay? It's 
like, sure, we know we're going to die, but on some level it's like, this is life and I'm here and this is the whole deal. And the self-importance, so fixed on me and what I need to get done and what's happening to me. So what happens when we're in this reaction to pleasantness and unpleasantness and controlling and trying to get more comfortable and trying to check things off the list is that we get disembodied. We leave the temple of our senses. We lose the intimacy that I think some of you feel a little when you come here and we say, okay, here, here. We become disconnected or divided. We become divided from our own body and from each other and from our world. My mother sent me a story that she had heard on the radio last week. A while back, an old, tired-looking dog wandered into the yard. I could tell from his collar, though no tags, and well-fed belly and the fact he was clean that he had a home. He followed me into the house, down the hall, and fell asleep on the couch. (laughs) My dogs didn't seem to mind. He seemed like a good dog, so I was okay with him. I let him nap. An hour later, he went to the door, and I let him out. The next day, he was back, resumed this position on the couch, and slept for an hour. This continued for several weeks. Curious, I pinned a note to his collar that I wrote. Every afternoon your dog comes to my house for a nap. I don't mind, but I want to make sure it's okay with you. (laughs) The next day he arrived with a different note pinned to his collar. Here's what it said. He lives in a home with three children. He's trying to catch up on his sleep. (laughs) May I come with him tomorrow? Sometimes the way I I think of it is that in this culture we disconnect from the natural rhythms. We disconnect from the natural cycles. We do, as John O'Donohue said, we get so caught in the stress and intensity of leaning forward and tumbling into the next thing and the next thing, you know, of being a self on our way somewhere that we lose touch with that listening, that inner listening. So what's happening in this body? And we're not able to really listen into, in any intuitive way really, what's happening around us. So one teacher was described interviewing children about the importance of the body and their response was, it's there to carry around the brain. (laughs) That's this culture. So the way we describe our conditioning is basically to control and protect the self's experience moment to moment. And if we start to slow down and watch, we'll start noticing how many moments in some way we're trying to get away from some angsty or unpleasant or restless feeling. How many moments we have the sense that we're trying to get on our way somewhere so the next moment includes what this moment does not. There's some sense that we're not there yet. And there's a sense that if it's unpleasant it's wrong, as I mentioned it, and that we should be trying to control or manage. And this is very much reinforced by our culture, which is to dominate nature, to control the body, to medicate the body, 
very quickly, and I don't mean that we shouldn't take an aspirin if we have a headache, but we over-medicate. Um, we assume that if we're grieving it should have like a timetable. I've had so many people come to me after a loss, maybe six months, eight months later, saying, enough already, I shouldn't still be grieving so much. You know, we put ourselves on these timetables of how we should feel. And what's most extraordinary to me is that we're embarrassed about aging and we're embarrassed about getting sick. And I can speak personally, I know what that's like from the inside. There's something slightly humiliating about this body that keeps on getting sick or these bodies that get old and in some way it's not quite supposed to be like that, we think, I I think we think. Again, the point is not that we should be avoiding doing what will comfort us. It's this chronic running away. George Carlin put it, I thought, well, he said, my motto is, no pain, no pain. (laughs) He also wrote, they show you how detergents take out blood stains. I think if you've got a shirt, a t-shirt with blood stains all over it, maybe your laundry isn't your biggest problem. (laughs) Anyway, what I'm mostly bringing this up for is because if we're talking about belonging and being here and with our senses awake, then it becomes critical to investigate how we leave. Every one of us goes off into trance much of the day. And if we don't begin to notice that sense of being divided in some way, off somewhere, one of the big signals is speed. Another big signal is judgment. Whenever we're turned on ourselves or turned on another, we've kind of left home. And then the third is that we're not aware of our bodies at those times. Let me say those three signals again, because they help me a lot. If you find yourself really speedy, if you find yourself judging, if you notice that you're not aware of your body, those are kind of flags of leaving home. The main reason we leave home is there's something usually that we haven't made friends with that's here. There's some restless, angsty feeling. Check it out. Just pause suddenly in the middle of the day and breathe and feel inside and you'll find something's kind of pushing you along because you're trying to get away from something or work out something and there's something right here that's not so easy to sit down into. Let's again just pause for a moment right here. If all that you get from tonight is kind of a remembering of checking back in to this world of the senses, to relax, relax your body, to listen, Sense the space that's here. Listen and feel the experience this moment. Now as we investigate, there's a couple of core principles that really can help us to become very, very dedicated and clear on this here-ness that I talk about. And one of the principles is that this unpleasantness or pain is inevitable. 
but suffering is optional. In other words, we are in bodies and there's going to be unpleasantness, there's going to be the squeeze of fear, there's going to be sorrow, there's going to be this whole play that happens. That's inevitable. But what's optional is whether we become imprisoned and trapped and at the mercy of it. That's one principle. And the second principle, which is related, is that pain times resistance equals suffering. And it's a great equation. And what that really means is that when you do stop and find unpleasantness there, to the extent that you resist it, that you judge it, that you try to get away from it, to that extent you become a prisoner of it. So we'll, we'll spend a little more time with that. Whatever we resist or try to manage, avoid, suppress, depress, is unlived life. It's life that we haven't been willing to be with. And one of the um, teachings that has really impacted me was Carl Jung when he said that the greatest influence on our own life and on our children's lives is the unlived lives of the parents. The greatest influence on our own experience and that of our children's is the unlived life of the parents. Now that's powerful and and I think you can hear it and something in us gets it that when we haven't shown up for what just needs to be experienced here something happens when we push away life. We're less whole, we're less here. There's a few things that you can really sense instinctively that happens with walled-off experience with the, the fears or the shame or the sorrows that we haven't been willing to just pause and be with. One thing that happens with Waldorf experience is that it takes energy to keep blocking it so we get tired. I've had many people that I've worked with when they start opening up to what they've been resisting find that they have a huge amount, this reservoir of energy, it's like they feel like they've been reborn in a way because it takes a lot to keep pushing things under. Okay, so that's one very that's intuitive, we can get that. Another thing that happens when we block energy is that it actually creates more physical unpleasantness. There's all sorts of repercussions with other physical and emotional illnesses that happen because when you're tensing against something it creates more pain and that's why in labor the most kind of fundamental principle is don't contract against the contraction, right? Same thing, that if there's some unpleasantness and we tighten against it, it compounds it. The third thing that happens to this unlived life is that it leaves us with a chronic sense of apprehension. Because we can tell there's something there that we're not touching. It's not like we forget it. And so there's always a sense that around the corner there's something that's going to be too much. What's really true is that inside us there's something we haven't felt and we know it. So there's like this chronic state of anxiety when we have not lived the unlived life. Does that all make sense? Just kind of checking, because to me it is very revealing that what we resist persists, what we resist causes suffering. And I, I thought of it kind of like, imagine that you go to a party 
and there's someone at the party that you know you want to avoid. And it might seem like your movement's free and you're just hanging out and talking to people and so on, but how much really is there this constant filter of, well, I want to make sure I don't go to that part of the room or I don't let my eyes go there or I keep with that person so I don't have... It's like there's this controlling that's going on and how easily at that party are we going to feel a sense of spontaneity or open-hearted affection when there's some part of us trying to control and avoid, we're not free. And so the person at the party is really an unpleasant part of our inner experience. And for you it might be physical pain, or it might be hurt or vulnerability or shame, something that you don't want others to see. But whenever we're moving through the day trying to manage something like that, we're not free to live our life fully. In the bottom kind of core sense of it, we don't feel belonging. When you're resisting a part of your experience, there's not a sense of belonging. And I've done these kind of informal surveys. Sometimes I'll I'll ask people, well, you're in in this group situation at a conference or at a party or whatever. Did you feel like you were kind of in the hub of belonging or did you feel marginal? And it's almost like nine out of ten or even more say that they felt on the outside. It's like we are rigged to feel a sense of not belonging. Separate. Something's wrong. And it's because of that unlived life. Somebody sent me this uh, some months ago. Uh, It says, When someone annoys you, it takes 42 muscles in your face to frown but it only takes four muscles to extend your arm and smack the creep upside the head. (laughs) Anyway, this is an advice for that party, you know. But so what's the dharma here in terms of this is that we're in the habit of resisting and usually our form of resistance is to disconnect from our body and blame and so on. And it's actually easier to do that than be present initially because it's our habit the cognitive scientists call it least resistance pathways. It's like it's become a habit, so it's easier for us to judge, to say, oh, that person's such and such. It's easier for us to speed up, it's easier for us to um, do our normal strategies of resistance than be present. So it takes a real intentionality. It takes a real intentionality. But the reason that we get intentional is that dukkha, our suffering actually wakes us up. There comes a time, one poem is Hokusai says, where our ways of doing things stop being interesting. We kind of get like, I've just done the same pattern over and over again. This is the fourth relationship that I see that I've done the same way of sabotaging or that I'm avoiding intimacy again or whatever it is. So there's some suffering, some sense of my life is going by and I'm skimming the surface or I'm staying trapped in fears and I'm not really letting myself be close to people. Time is going by. It's like if I looked at my life at the end, looking back, what would matter? And we realize we're not living true to what most matters. We're driving through the day with the kind of engine of anxiety, fear, grasping. Something in us wants to be present because we don't want to keep repeating the same cycles. So there is a 
alchemy of transformation that happens when we begin this practice of radical presence. So we're coming back again to the theme of of where the night started. When we begin to train in being awake here, like really pausing and saying, okay, whatever's here, there's this kind of willingness. You can feel it right now. There's this willingness, okay, let me feel what's here. We begin to undo the conditioning, the resistance, that keeps us kind of identified as a self that's avoiding, a self that's hiding. Any time we meet that clutch of fear or shame with a genuine wholehearted presence, something changes. And rather than being a prisoner of the fear or shame, in the moment of presence, we become the awareness that's aware. We begin to dissolve that small self-identification and we re-inhabit wholeness. We touch enlightenment through our body. Presence with what's here allows us to inhabit presence, realize that's what we are. So let's talk about the actual practice, okay, of how we come into the senses. One of the best descriptions, uh, 11th century Tibetan teacher Tilopa said, do nothing with the body but relax. So for this moment, sense what happens when your intention is just to feel your body and relax. Just sense that. The first foundation of awareness in Buddhism is a felt awareness of the whole body as a field of vibratory sensations, a unified field of tactile sensations. Do nothing with this field of sensations but relax, just notice and relax. Now if you relax, Can you sense how you start actually feeling more? One of the most revealing things in meditation is discovering that sensations can be felt in every part of the body. But why doesn't that happen? Tension in the body is a form of resisting. It numbs and prevents the sensations from being felt. That's what perpetuates the unlived life. We tense against experience. Do nothing with the body but relax. I will continue to practice again. This is the gateway of the senses. Listen to the sounds that are here. Listen to the space in the room. Relax listening. Listen to and feel the sensations in the body. 
let yourself belong fully to this awareness that's right here. The poet Dana Fald says, trust the energy, trust the energy that courses through you. Trust, then take surrender even deeper. Be the energy. She's saying belong to it, surrender into it, be it. Don't push anything away. Follow each sensation back to its source in vastness and pure presence. Just explore what it means to not resist anything. Take the surrender even deeper. Be the energy. Don't push anything away. Follow each sensation back to its source in vastness and pure presence. Emerge so new, so fresh that you don't know who you are. Welcome in the season of the monsoons. Whatever happens, welcome. Be the bridge across the flooded river and the surging torrent underneath. Be unafraid of consummate wonder. Be the energy and blaze a trail across the clear night sky like lightning. Dare to be your own illumination. So this is the ground of training in sacred presence. It's courageous in that we really surrender into what's right here, belong to the aliveness that's here, belong to the awareness that's aware, be the energy. Now, if you'd like to open your eyes, it's fine, but stay, stay here, stay. You, I can feel you arriving and arriving, and it's quite beautiful. Now, sometimes when we do this practice of radical presence, it's just this, in a simple way, just open to that aliveness, and you just feel the aliveness, and the heart opens with that, because then whatever you become aware of is received with an absolutely undefended heart, and there's a tenderness. And that's really sweet. Also, what can happen is that when we're that open and available and alive, the unlived life is welcome to come to light. So it's almost like anything that has not been experienced by awareness, the more we become aware, the more awareness wants to include everything, all the unlived life. So sometimes people will come to retreat and they'll start opening and, and really belonging to that presence and find the things that they hadn't been in touch with starts presenting themselves, like old trauma and drama and obsessions or fears or sadnesses or shames. And it's like, as one friend of mine says, awareness comes back for all the parts of our being that have been pushed away. 
that it's this movement towards inclusion and wholeness. So we take it as, oh, it's, it's something's wrong, but it's actually this untangling of the tangles that can happen as we begin to have the unlived life come into the light of awareness. So how do we work with that? The basic guidelines in terms of opening to the unlived life and belonging to the moment is notice the story that's going on. And usually the story is something's wrong with me, something's wrong with you, I shouldn't have done... And we've got all these storylines and keep honoring them but come back to the actual experience right here. Keep coming back to the experience that's right here. And I'll share one um, example that I have... I told this group about a year and a half ago when I got back from a... from teaching on the West Coast. I was teaching a weekend and one of the men attending, his wife had asked him to come because she was dying and he was the one that was accompanying her in the dying process and she wanted him to get a retreat in and um, she didn't have that long to go. And he came to the retreat really terrified about falling short as the person that was, you know, they were Catholics and why wasn't she having a priest and this and that, but she really wanted him to be the one. So um, he basically asked me, should I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead? What should I do for instructions? How do I learn how to, you know, keep someone company in their passing? And his underlying question is, how am I going to do this right? And even under that was the fear of, I've let people down all my life, I blow it, I'm going to blow this, this is the most important thing, I'll end up, you know, alone, I'll ruin love, you know, all, all the, that whole swamp, okay? And so, as you might imagine, I let him know that it was not the right time to do a whole lot of reading on manuals <laughs> or doing training on anything. But what we talked about was this radical presence and the potential of his hardened awareness when he really gave himself to here, to being here. And I shared with him, I had, um, I had just co-led a, um, a weekend with a few different spiritual teachers including Father Thomas Keating. And one of his ways of describing the practice is whatever arises to just offer the message, I consent, I consent. And another way of saying that is to say yes. And it's not necessarily the word yes, it's a cellular agreement to the life that's here. So if right now you could sense, okay, so what does it mean to say yes? It means that in a very embodied way we're profoundly allowing just what's here to be here. I consent. So we discussed this and that basically was what he left with, was to be with this woman that he cherished and keep her company and keep on consenting to or saying yes to anything that came up. I heard from him some weeks after. It turned out she died two days later. It was very quick. He called me and he said that when he allowed himself to pause, he kept having to pause and come home, he did know how to be with her. He said he kept having to let go of ideas of what was going to happen, what should happen, how it should be, how she should be experiencing dying, how he, he had to keep on re-letting go of the storyline and just be with 
the exhaustion he, that he was feeling, the fear, the sorrow. And he said he kept whispering, I consent. And it was like his body was agreeing to what was happening. And he said from that he knew how to whisper what he needed to whisper in terms of encouragement or just, it's okay, let go. He knew how to hold her. He knew how to sing to her. He knew how to be. Because remember, our minds don't know, but our bodies know, our hearts know. It's our minds that leave us homeless. So he took refuge. He belonged to this aliveness in the body, this willingness to feel what was here. He belonged to that, and that guided him. He said what was most moving was the depth of connection. He said, as I dropped any thought about the future or what I should do, I could open to the fullness of her spirit. There was nothing wrong. There was no longer a sense of her and me. Rather, we were a field of loving, total openness, warmth, belonging, light. She's gone, but that living field of loving is always with me. When we learn to belong to the moment and belong to awareness, we're really learning our belonging to that which is timeless. And that's really the only refuge we have. It's like everything's going to go. Everything's going to go, these bodies, these minds, everyone we love. And yet if we can take refuge, if we can belong to presence, if we can belong to awareness, then we have a home, a place of, of true belonging that has room for whatever comes and goes, whatever comes and goes. One of the teachings I feel is most important when we practice this radical presence is to dismiss any idea that we're supposed to do it right. I think the thing that most takes us from presence is um, an undercurrent, this kind of message that we send to ourselves that we're not meditating right or living right. So I invite you as you practice this gateway of the senses to notice if there's an attitude of not doing it right. And just notice that and come back again. You know how Mary Oliver puts it, she says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. What allows us to keep meeting our edge, all the ways that we resist and defend and soften, come back right here, is that in our depths we have a longing to love fully. We have a longing to be free. We have a longing to live in truth. We have a longing to live our lives fully. So even though we all have strategies about unlived life, we all have ways of avoiding, we have this deep longing that basically is an invitation to be here. That's what it comes down to. No matter what's going on, whatever we call the spiritual path, ultimately the whole path is an invitation towards this radical presence, this deep saying yes, 
where we let go of all resistance and come right here. When we do that, clearly there's an opening to all that we might call the shadow, all that's difficult. And the alchemy of transformation is to meet that with kindness and with a sense of um, wonder. This is again John O'Donohue. He says, The arrival of spring is a miracle of the richest color. Yet we always seem to forget that all of these beautiful colors have been born in darkness. The dark earth is the well out of which color flows. Think of the patience of trees, year after year, stretching up to the light, keeping a lifeline open between the dark night of the clay and the blue shimmer of the heavens. Think of the beautiful high contours of mountains lifting up the earth, the music of streams and the fluent travel of rivers linking the stolid silence of land masses with the choruses of the ocean. Think of animals who carry in their dignity and simplicity of presence such refined longing. Think of yourself and feel how you belong so deeply to the earth and how you are a tower of longing in which nature rises up and comes to voice. We are the children of the clay who have been released so that the earth may dance in the light. So let's just take a moment together again. The very heart of the path is this willingness to arrive right here listening and feeling the life that's here. Surrendering into and belonging to this aliveness. Inhabiting these changing clay forms. right this moment, letting go a little more. Opening to the infinite mysterious expressions of the sacred. I'd like to close with a blessing that was offered by John O'Donohue. He writes, May you awaken to the mystery of being here. May you awaken to the mystery of being here and enter the quiet immensity of your own presence. May you have joy and peace in the temple of your senses. May you respond to the call of your gift and find the courage to follow its path. May the flame of anger free you from falsity. 
May warmth of heart keep your presence aflame and may anxiety never linger about you. May your outer dignity mirror an inner dignity of soul. May you take time to celebrate the quiet miracles that seek no attention. May you experience each day as a sacred gift woven around the heart of wonder. Namaste.